0: against the law to talk over Van Halen. I'm just saying. Thanks for being here. It's the Mike Broomhead Show. We appreciate you spending part of your morning with us. The tragedy in East Palestine, Ohio, continues to go on. The saga continues. Um, Very well-known activist Aaron Brockovich has weighed in on this, saying that you're not going to gaslight me. They are very concerned in East Palestine, Ohio, that they are not getting the relief that is necessary, and they're not necessarily being told the truth. I want you to hear an ABC News report. This is Alex Presha talking about the concerns from people in east palestine residents not taking any chances stocking up on bottled water and free home filters environmental advocate aaron brockovich telling me this community will need testing for the foreseeable future we're not talking about a matter of months from now we're not talking about even a matter of years from now but potentially decades is that what i'm hearing absolutely this begins a huge water issue. We've seen it play itself out over and over and over again. The White House directing multiple agencies to continue door-to-door check-ins on families here. There is a resident named Wade Lovett. You probably saw the news story or watched the videos over the weekend. He has got a very high-pitched voice. It sounds like he's been inhaling helium. He said, doctors say I definitely have the chemicals in me, but there's no one in town who can run the toxicological tests to find out which ones they are. My voice sounds like Mickey Mouse. My normal voice is low. It's hard to breathe, especially at night. My chest hurts so much at night. I feel like I'm drowning. I cough up phlegm a lot. I lost my job because the doctors won't release me to go to work. There are many people concerned about how this goes. The politics of this are going to play into it. It's just how it's going to be. I was, um, (laughs) it's so funny. I was on, um, CNN last week. And one of the panelists, if for whatever reason he is a big defender of Pete Buttigieg, and one of the tweets that I've been that he co- you know copied me in because I was on the panel with him was about how they want to blame Pete Buttigieg for everything. It's not about that because the play, the blame game goes two ways. Here's a Washington Post story. This headline will tell you everything you need to know about the politics of things like this. So far, that starts with the two words so far. <laughs> Trump's rollbacks of regulation can't be blamed for the Ohio train wreck. They're trying. They're trying somehow to hang this around his neck. Now, the President of the United States, I want you to hear Joe Biden. This is uh, Dave Packer from ABC. As the President defends his response to the derailment. Denying critics who say his administration was slow to respond to the toxic derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, President Biden. You know, we were there two hours after the train went down. Two hours. Biden says the response after the chemical spill and fire is still ongoing. I'm keeping very close tabs on it. We're doing all we can. The President saying he's spoken to the governors of both Ohio Iowa and Pennsylvania, as well as congressional representatives from the area. But has not yet said whether he will travel to the crash site. So if you're not in East Palestine and you are talking about a national conversation, uh, President uh, Biden says it's we didn't do anything wrong and people that are defending President Biden are defending him. At the same time, former President Trump is already a candidate for the nomination to regain that office that he lost in 2020 to Joe Biden. So there is a camp of people that want to hang this around Trump's neck. President Trump went to East Palestine and he brought supplies to the people in East Palestine. So people are calling that a political maneuver. But so when we are away, and I'm one of them, I'm far away from East Palestine, Ohio. We have these political conversations. In the end, as Americans, shouldn't we be concerned, A, about what happened, B, about what damage it's left behind, and C, what's necessary to lessen the chance that something like this happen again? That seems to me to be a reasonable response, not a Republican response, not a Democrat response, an American response, uh, the concern about what happened and how it was handled. There is a debrief that's done. The idea that they did a controlled burn. Was that – did it make matters worse? That isn't to condemn somebody for what they did and what they thought was the best thing to do at the time, but to ask the question in hindsight, would we ever do that again or is that what we do every time? As we've watched everything in our society, let's talk about the way we fight wars. When we see that we don't have the open battlefields anymore, you look at what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan where it's door to door and kicking in doors. The manner in which our military trains to fight is different than it was. Why? It's changed with time. When you look at use of force in police departments, it changes. What worked in in 1970 doesn't work in 2020 or 2023, I should say. But when you're talking about the lives of people, there are so many residents that are afraid to drink the water. They certainly don't want their children around it. They're going to be concerned about what's going to happen. Is it car- uh, carcinogenic? Are they going to have uh, cancer issues down the road, other disease issues down the road? You've got this guy whose voice is very high. He said, I've got these chemicals in me, but no one here can do the test to find out what chemicals are in me. Shouldn't this be the concern of the American people? Now, I understand it, it is going to happen. I, I watched it happen on the set of CNN, I watched the conversation immediately be about whose fault it was. A conversation that went like this, and I think part of it was off the air, but the conversation was, at least at this point... Any of the changes made by Donald Trump wouldn't have affected this. But we know if this had been done or this had been done, it would make things safer down the road. It was already this connection of somehow we know that Donald Trump reduced regulations and somehow we got to connect this or we think it should be a connection. We want more regulation and we should be able to use this issue in that regard. Pete Buttigieg isn't guilty of being bad at his job and everybody's trying to call him bad at his job. And Donald Trump going to East Palestine is nothing but a political ploy to gain political points. And that's how the conversations go. That's where we are in American politics. I look at this and I think, thank God this hasn't happened here. How many of you now – I had to drive to Tucson last Thursday. And as I was driving to Tucson, you know when you get close to Tucson, the uh, train tracks parallel – uh, the I-10 heading toward Tucson, you know, past Marana going to Tucson. And uh, I saw a couple of trains that were speeding toward the valley from the Tucson area. And the first thought I had was, wonder what's in those cars, and I wonder what would happen if it happened here. How often now are we going to watch a train uh, passing here here in town if you're driving on Grand Avenue? Where the trains parallel Grand Avenue all the way out of town. How, how much of that time are you going to take thinking to yourself, I wonder, I wonder if it can happen here. And those are the concerns of the American people. The politics of what happens there is secondary, but it seems to be primary in certain circles on both sides, by the way. It's just very disturbing to me. I want to talk about the border because the president pledges to fix a broken refugee program. How close is he to fixing that? Many experts are saying not even close. We'll get to it in just a moment. values and strong opinions the Mike Broomhead show KTAR News 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app And hey, thanks so much for being here USA Today story said Biden pledged to fix a broken US refugee program 2 years later he's nowhere near his goal that's the headline in the USA Today President Joe Biden took office 2 years ago pledging to reverse the harsh immigration policies of the Trump administration Um I guess that's where the politics in America are are bad. I, I will tell you I enjoy the differences between Republicans and Democrats. I, I respect an opposing point of view. I think it makes you better when you can defend yours and explain to people, and this is in the court of public opinion and in the halls of our legislative bodies, whether they're local or state or federal, that we should be able to tell the American people – Not just what we support, because you're going to have the support of the diehards in your party. They're going to hear that you said it, and they're going to automatically agree with it. That's not bad. It's not good. It's just not bad either. It just is how it is. But there are people out there that are apolitical in the sense that they don't care about R's and D's. So when they're registered as independent or other or party not designated or whatever else – it's because they are kind of connected to a set of ideals and they want ideas that suit those that are best for America. And the immigration policies of this administration play a big role in the things that happen. You know, um, and I just found this out last week when I was at a border summit, that immigration judges – are under the purview of the Department of Justice. They are not under the judicial branch and separate from the executive branch. I didn't know that, meaning that the immigration judges, to a certain extent, are enforcing policies that are at the pleasure of the president via the Justice Department, because we know the attorney general is handpicked by the president because of the set of ideals that that person stands for. Um, so there is a lot in policy that is dictating what's happening, and we know that coming up and it's rapidly approaching, we are going to see the end of Title 42, and we, the expectation of mass migration is there. What are we doing as a society? Now, the Biden administration, and this is a good news, the Biden administration has seen the outcry of the American people on both sides of the aisle and independents. And they have all been screaming that what you are doing at the border is a disaster. So what they have done is they have gone back to some of the Trump era policies. Now, they're not going to call them those policies. But if you look at them saying we will turn you back if you are from these certain nations, you won't even be allowed. There's another. Other thing that can be done, and it's the safe, the first safe nation rule. Meaning, let's say you're coming from a country like Venezuela with a very oppressive government, or you're going to come from Cuba via Mexico. You're not going to get on a boat. You're not going to, you know, go to Miami or go to Key West. You're going to fly to Mexico and walk across the southern border. Whatever it is that you're going to do, that the first safe country or safer country that you come to. You have to apply for asylum there and stay there if you're going to eventually apply for asylum in the U.S. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me. That's the remain in Mexico policy. When you hear it explained, it certainly doesn't sound like an abusive, harsh policy that you are you want to be safe. You want to make sure that you're getting away from an oppressive Venezuelan government or you're coming from a Central American country that's very, very violent or very, very poor. So then you make your way to Mexico. Now you're safe. And I would think most people would agree you're safe. You stay there. You file your asylum papers outside of America and you have your case heard while you're waiting to come in. If your case is successful, then you cross into the border and you come into the U.S. But what we have seen happen is completely the opposite of that. Well, it's starting to change a bit. The president of the United States has rolled back some of those open door policies and many of the people on his side of the aisle don't like it. In the end... Americans deserve an immigration policy that they can believe in, that they're proud of. And I mean this more sincerely than a lot of things. I mean I mean everything on the air I say. I'm not making any of it up, but the sincerity of this, this means a lot to me as an American. Growing up around immigrant families, many immigrant families, I believe them to be the saving grace of the U.S., as those of us, the further we get away from the founding fathers as a nation, the lack of um, education on the true history of the U.S., and what I mean by that is the sacrifice of wealthy white people that did own – some of them owned slaves, but their their goal was a free nation. And the founding – we get so caught up in these other politics of things. That the nation that we grew up in was founded on pre- freedom, on principles of individual liberties. And the further we get away from the protection of that, the more we start seeing young people buying into the ideas that socialism is somehow fair and kind and just and capitalism is mean and evil and differentiates between winners and losers. We get further away from the America that was here even 50 years ago and we get closer to an America that's closer to the nation's where Some of these people are fleeing. And when you hear people that are my age, maybe older or younger, that have come from nations that are communist or socialist countries, they are coming to America. They are living the American dream, and then they are imploring the American people not to go down these roads. I think those are the people that understand what the individual liberties that America provides, whether it's successful and monetarily successful or not, that they are warning about going down the road of these other nations. I believe those immigrants to this nation are going to save this country. I really do. And the faster we do something about these programs and allow for maybe a guest worker program or an expanded visa program that says, you know, we need to do something to you know, help stimulate the economy with jobs that are not being filled. This would help these nations where these people come from. It would, it would do a lot at the border could be a way to do things differently. And I'm hoping that somebody starts listening to those ideas. Coming up in a moment, I talked a little bit about this earlier and I want to go back to it. The Phoenix, the city of Phoenix is going to be selling forfeited guns to the public. The vice mayor says she doesn't think the city should be in the gun business. We'll talk about that next. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 923 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. I want to read a couple of headlines before I get to the thrust of this uh, conversation again. Uh, Chicago's pursuit of criminal justice reform is an utter failure. Homicides top the nation for the 11th year. Crime still rising. Uh, L.A. Mayor Bass calls for a root out right wing extremist police, signals lowering the bar for new recruits. Might be a little dangerous. Um, um where can you carry a gun? Whiplash court ruling creates confusion. Seattle kids are forced to walk walk past junkies on their way to school living through America's slums. Um so there's two tiers to this conversation. The first one I'm going to start with has to do with justice reform, with the idea that we are going to stop punishing people and a lot of it has to do with racial inequities. And I want to deal with those. Um Racism exists in the hearts of people and it is one of the biggest faults in human beings. And it's funny about that is all of the things we talk about that make us different, where racism comes from, it's the one thing where we're all the same. Every race is susceptible to this. Um, in the Hispanic community, um, you don't want to accidentally confuse a Cuban with a Puerto Rican because I've done that. I was with a Cuban girl for a long time. Not a good thing. You don't want to confuse Mexicans with Cubans. You. I mean it's just – it's not – racist necessarily but people are proud of their heritage and they want to be identified by it when you look at the racial divide in america with white and non-white and what it does in our society it's very very difficult so we have this divide in us and then what it also further divides us when we say people are treated differently under the law now i will say to you that as as a i've been a victim of crime As some others have been, um, I was a, you know, I was fighting two guys in a parking lot that were shoplifting. One was white, one was black. And it was the white guy. That was high as a kite and very aggressive and threatened to kill me and was throwing liquor bottles at me. And it was a ridiculous thing because the kid, I outweighed him by almost 100 pounds. And this kid was going to get injured if he messed with me. Um, And I'm not saying that less than Chuck Norris. I just mean he was a very small kid that was very, very high. But he was the aggressive one, the physically aggressive one. (laughs) Not punishing people when they commit crimes like that makes them more aggressive and keeps them on the streets. If they didn't do it to me, they would have done it to someone else. And so that's the fear is when we don't punish people for the smaller crimes, we wait until they commit bigger crimes, which means there are more victims. Now let's talk about this uh, headline about guns. Despite objections, Phoenix will sell forfeited guns to the public. There are about 1,400 firearms, handguns, rifles, and shotguns that will be made available under state law. Under state law, if you confiscate firearms, you can't destroy them. You have to sell them, and if you don't, you could lose state funding. The vice mayor and Ansari says, I don't feel that Phoenix should be forced into the business of selling weapons. She and fellow council members Carlos Garcia, Betty uh, Guardado, uh, Guardado, I'm sorry, Laura Pastor, voted against the contract with the Sierra Tactical Auctions to proceed with proceeds going to the city's general fund. We're the ones closest to the communities and actually suffer from gun violence. This is what is so funny. we are lessen, We are lessening the punishments on the criminals. And we are increasing the limitations on law-abiding citizens. No one out there, no one out there can show you evidence that taking these guns and putting them in the hands of law-abiding citizens makes crime worse on our streets and gun violence worse on our streets. Impossible. And yet – At first, look, the first time you see it, we're going to put 1,400 more guns on the streets. No, they were taken off the streets. They're going to go into the hands of law-abiding citizens. And the money raised from those 1,400 guns are going to go into the general fund for the city. So either someone like myself, who is a legal gun owner, is going to go out and buy these guns and add them to a collection or add them to what they have. Or they're going to go and buy them for firearms dealers. But they've been taken out of the hands by the, by, by the uh, cops and they've been forfeited through the legal process from people that weren't supposed to have them. Tell me how this isn't a good thing. This proves, my theory, that gun control advocates just hate guns. Guns are the problem. That's the only rational explanation. That the only good thing you can do when a gun is taken off the street is destroy it. So I'm going to ask another question along the same lines. If we were doing the same thing with confiscated vehicles, DUI, DUI crashes. Someone gets an extreme DUI, their vehicle is forfeited, whatever the reasons are. We resell those vehicles. Um, if one of those vehicles is involved in another DUI or another crash, is the city r- irresponsible for putting another vehicle in the sh- on the streets? You're laughing right now because oh, that's not even the same. It's exactly the same. Your view of a gun is for one thing to inflict injury or death. Therefore, the guns themselves are evil. And if we didn't have as many guns out there, we wouldn't have as many deaths out there. And I beg to differ. The vast majority of murders are committed by handguns, not by AR 15 type rifles. That the crime we see in Chicago largely are being committed by criminals against people. People that are already criminally, um, are already legally not allowed to have a gun. The law is already prohibited, and yet they're getting them. We're talking about forfeited firearms that have been taken out of the hands of criminals and are now being sold to law-abiding citizens. It is not even close to the same. If the city of Phoenix is selling forfeited vehicles, and I know they do, or any forfeited equipment, and it goes into the general fund of the city, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. And this is no different than any of that other property. But because it's a firearm, it automatically in the minds of some is a bad thing to begin with and should be destroyed. We have to change the way we look at things and look for real solutions and not scapegoats. In a moment, um, we are going to talk about schools. Many schools have not spent their COVID relief money, but there is at least one school district in Arizona that's different. We're going to talk about why this is important coming up in just a moment. Thanks so much for being here. Here is the headline. Queen Creek Unified School District bucks the state trend for COVID aid spending. And the story says that they have uh, already spent nearly three quarters of the $19.2 million in COVID relief money, according to a report from the State Auditor General. Most school districts haven't even spent half of their total allotment. That includes the State Department of Education. Mesa Public Schools still has millions, according to a headline. Uh, Why is this a big deal? and and there's a few things to talk about here um the districts and charters reportedly spent just over 2.2 billion or 48% of their nearly 4.6 billion allocated relief monies. Districts have until September 30th of next year to spend their third round of the largest pandemic funding from the elementary schools and secondary schools and 20% of that must address learning loss stemming from the school closures. The report shows that Queen Creek received a total of 19.2 million and have spent just under 13.3 million leaving a balance of 6 million. Um... So the report defines classroom spending as instruction costs of activities that deal directly with the interaction between teachers and students, student support costs for activities that assess and improve the student's well-being, and instruction support costs of activities that assist instruction staff content and the process of providing learning experiences for students. So as we continue to have a conversation about school counselors and mental health evaluations for students, for for evaluations on students to figure out how to get them back on track with reading and math skills. Money needs this money needs to be spent and it needs to be done between this year and about what are they got about a year and a half to spend it. September of twenty four is when it's got to be spent. So the question we all should be asking is about what are they doing with this money? This is where, and I'm not complaining, I'm pointing out something. When we talk about the autonomy of school districts, when the state allocates its funds and the federal government allocates its funds, the state doesn't have oversight, generally speaking, of how the districts spend that money. That the districts then give the teacher raises based on how they spend the dollars allocated for their district. They buy curriculum. They have building maintenance. They have bus drivers. They have custodians. They have oversight and they have a school board. They have a superintendent that is paid a salary. They have other salary district employees. And the people in that district have to come up, that district office, have to come up with the way they spend that money, which is why I've said for a long time people should be asking If you live in a district, not even if you have children there, your tax dollars are going to that district. What are you spending your money on? And now I would say to you, I would ask the question of the school district. What are you waiting for with the covid money? Why aren't you hiring tutors? Why aren't you hiring any of these people? I think it's a, it is a reasonable request to ask the school district, the people that are employed with your tax dollars, to oversee how the money is spent, the efficiency in which it's spent, and the results they get from spending that money. I don't think it's an unfair question to ask. What are school districts doing that have these millions of dollars? Are they waiting to get a program together? What's And, and there may be some very justified answers. For other people, I just don't know. Um, here's a headline. Oklahoma is set to debut a first of its kind school choice program. The skates, the state's program, which would create a refundable tax credit program for all families that can be used on homeschooling or private education expenses is tied to legislation that would increase funding for public schools, give teachers a pay raise and create a refundable tax credit. And people are going to be upset about it here in Arizona. You know, Representative Gress, who uh, is uh, pushed a bill and it's very popular with Republicans, would guarantee a direct raise of ten thousand dollars to teachers paid for by a separate fund where the money would go directly into the classroom, which is what everybody complains about is being balked at by the teachers organizations. I can't still can't get an answer as to why they're balking at this. They are supposed to be in favor of teachers. And you're talking about under underfunded classrooms and a teacher shortage. A $10,000 raise is nothing to sneeze at. Almost $1,000 a month before taxes. Actually, when you look at a teacher's salary for the months they work where they're off for the summertime, it's more than that. I mean, I know that the money's paid out over an annual basis, but that's incredible Why would they balk at that? And a lot of it has to do with the oversight that's attached, some of the accountability for the dollars. There is a fight and a struggle within public schools right now with who has control. And I will tell you, even with the parents I disagree with, and there are many that disagree with me, I believe those parents should have control of the tax dollars attached to their children. If there are parents out there, when I talk about critical race theory and social emotional learning and other things that I find is a distraction to the critical things that kids need to learn. If I were running a school, let me tell you what it would be like, and it's completely opposite of the way I behaved when I was school. Here's my hypocrisy from when I was 16, 17 years old because I didn't want to go – I didn't want to be involved in school. But it would be the STEM courses that students would be focused on their reading skills and their math skills and science and social studies and history. There would be a citizenship test that you would have to understand the basics of American government in order to graduate. I would get rid of Earth Day. I would get rid of all of these other days. I would get rid of all of these other cultural studies. What I mean by that is the studies of – um, that take away from the core you want to do them as an elective class i think that's a great idea as a standard mandate in the curriculum i'd get rid of it and i'd get rid of it not because they're good or bad but because they are not the most important and we are at a critical time in public education where we need to teach kids that are most important but now if i had that school there are a lot of you that say that would be the school i'd send my my children to that they would have an opportunity to be in the band if they wanted or an athlete if they wanted. That the extracurricular activity would be back and be more what we would call as a traditional school. But there are a lot of parents out there that would say, no way. This is the 21st century and I want to send my kid to a 21st century school. Those parents should have schools available to them that are that way. And the parents should be able to send their children to the education that they believe their children need and deserve. And more and more states in the country right now are saying, you know what? That's the way it should be. We are going to have school choice. If the school boards aren't going to listen to the parents, if they're not going to open the books and show us where they spend every dollar, we will pull our kids and those tax dollars out and we'll send our kids what's going to a more a place that's more adaptable. I think it's a great idea and I'm glad this is happening. And let's see how many of you actually reach out to your school district and ask them, where's the covid money going and when are you going to spend it? Be a great question to ask, I think. Coming up, just after 11 o'clock, we talked with Jennifer Wright. She is a lawyer in the attorney general's office, the former attorney general's office. We'll talk about our conversation next.